Markets are lurching from one day to the next. Investors are punch drunk, and headlines around the world are filled with numbers that only a week ago would have been jaw-droppingly unbelievable. So trying to predict the future might seem a task for the foolhardy. But that's precisely what I'm going to ask my guest today to do. There's no doubt that what's happening at the moment will leave the world in a very different shape, and investors have to be ready. So for the next half hour or so, we're going to try to imagine what the new world might look like. What sort of political landscape could the stimulus of 2020 shape in 2022? And which companies might emerge on the other side of the coronavirus crisis? I'm joined on the line by three of Fidelity's investment team. They're speaking from the comfort of their own homes. We're all in lockdown. I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. First of all, to Paris. Uh, hi, good afternoon, Richard. Uh, this is Paris Anand. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific, and I'm joining you from Singapore. And Annette. Annette Avenimka. I manage the Global Consumer Fund and co-manage Global Demographics Fund. I am based in London, and I'm here in my flat in West London with my family. Excellent. And finally, Ned. Hi, I'm Ned Salter. Uh, I'm a head of equities at Fidelity. Uh, managing the global research function in a, in a handful of our portfolio managers around the world. And I'm dialed in from Oldsworth, Gloucestershire today. How exotic. Now, let's, uh, let's get going. Paris, before the pandemic, there was already concern about how governments were going to unwind the huge piles of debt that had built up since the great financial crisis. Now we're seeing those same governments committing even more money to mitigate the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic. So an easy one for you to start with. Does this mean more austerity eventually or a fundamental rethinking of sovereign debt? So I think that what we are seeing as a consequence of the pandemic is a very determined shift away from any attention to austerity or uh, fiscal prudence towards much more kind of fiscal stimulus. I think that that really you could argue, has sort of two components to it. The first is that it's very evident the demand destruction that is going to be, we're going to see in the in the short term, given the containment uh, strategies that are required to deal with the virus. But I also think that uh, over the medium term, so over the next 12 to 18 months, it is very likely that governments will recourse to much more fiscal stimulus to help drive economic activity as we sort of come through this. So there had already, as you alluded to, been some questions about the, the degree to which the monetary stimulus that was being used was having a meaningful impact in the real economy. And I expect that economic strategy to fundamentally change as we come through this. So what, what, what will the consequences be? So I think that the consequences will be, first of all, that we will get you know, increasing size of government in, in the context of, of, of the economy. I think we will see possibly more inflationary pressure in the system as we get uh, greater government spending against a backdrop of already uh, full employment. And I think we'll start to see uh, some quite different impacts in terms of the corporate sector relative to the environment that we've been in over the last 10 years. I suppose it's uh, spend now because we have to and worry about it later. I think that's I think that that's 
right in a sense that the the urgency of the present situation has effectively kind of removed the debate about the need for government spending not just short term but 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 medium term as well i mean one way that you could sort of think about what we're experiencing especially in western economies is that this this pandemic has been a way that we are stress testing things like public health systems and uh, stress testing uh, the economy more broadly and just as we saw within at the time of the financial crisis that under duress we found that the financial system wasn't uh, well capitalized enough to with, to withstand that stress i think that the the view that will be taken going forward is that economies are have put arguably underinvested in areas like frontline services and healthcare to be able to withstand uh, emergencies such as this, and that will become a priority for the world post the pandemic. And the world after the pandemic, Ned, there's every chance that the political environment that companies are working in will have changed um, dramatically, even in the US. So how do you think that will play out with companies? I think there's so much to think about, um, Richard, when we think about how we're the, what the world is going to look like for companies operating post the crisis. Certainly, you know, our analysts and portfolio managers around the world are trying to think about what the shape of this recovery looks like. Is it a V-shaped recovery? Is it a U-shaped recovery? Or as some say, is it an L-shaped recovery? Uh, and unfortunately, I think we are going to see some destruction in the market. Now, some of that may be of companies that we call zombie companies uh, that are operating with sort of unfit unit economics already today. And, and for the system long term, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. In terms of you know being careful about the good companies, though, obviously that that's what we're looking at. We're we're spending a huge amount of time thinking about how should we try to understand the fundamentals of companies and industries. And obviously, I think if we use history as the predictor of what the future is going to look like, I think we'd be making a mistake for investors. And there will be some seismic shifts that take place. Paris, I think that one of the things building on Ned's point that we are likely to see is that greater transition of assets from weak hands to strong hands. You know, that's what we typically see during, uh, during a period where we're in a bear market and we're in a period of, of, of an economic downturn. What's really important for investors to remember is that this was actually something that we didn't see in the aftermath of the financial crisis because it was a systemic issue and it was a solvency issue. We found ourselves in a situation where to use Ned's phrase, corporations with poor unit economics were still had, were able to receive ongoing finance. I expect that to be very different uh, as we sort of you know, think through the next quarters and years. Okay, well, I think we'll come to that a little bit more detail later on. Um, but um, Anetta, to ask you as a portfolio manager, are you already beginning to position your funds for the world in, you know, is it, however it might land in a couple of years time? Yes, obviously, today we think a lot about the future and how future is going to change. But I must say the companies I invest in have very strong management, very strong execution. They are very agile and they have global businesses. And those companies, we need to be aware of it, that they have lived through the crisis already for a few months. They've seen that in China. They dealt with it in China. And now they are applying the same playbooks to what's happening in Europe 
and uh, in the US. We are thinking about the very long-term future, about how demographic is changing uh, the way we live our lives. And those things will continue to play out. And we've done very little changes uh, because of what's going on. Let's um, have a look now at, uh, at debt, because it's not just sovereign debt, the central bank um, balance sheets. And now, um, Paris, you, you've pointed to the government debt that's going to be building up. Companies have been borrowing too, taking advantage of these historically low um, rates. Um, many of those businesses are now facing a moment of reckoning as the, the credit markets uh, seize up, rating agencies downgrade swathes of, um, of corporate bond. Um, Ned, are we going to see entire sectors change shape, or will the policy... Uh, support that there is now, is that going to mitigate it? I'm not entirely sure, Richard, I know what every industry is going to look like when we come out the other side of this. But I think, as we alluded to earlier, there will be companies that are going to require some support. And as Paris mentioned, I do think the the areas of support will ultimately come uh, to those companies that serve a national interest. And I think we've already seen airlines, for example, reaching out to governments for support. And certainly, I think companies with those strong fundamentals will also be able to finance their way through this temporary period of demand destruction. So those are two categories of companies that we're looking at. And ultimately, there will also be some new winners that come out of this. And, and again, Paris referred to this creative destruction at times like this, we see great innovation in companies, and we've seen companies pivoting their business models very swiftly and significantly, whether that's online groceries, increasing capacity, or restaurants turning themselves into grocery stores over the course of a weekend. Uh, so we will see some very interesting entrepreneurship and real winners come through this, as well as companies that are going to need some financial support. So I suppose, Annetta, there are actually two questions here. There's the sorts of companies that are going to do well during the crisis, ones who are um, nimble and agile, as, as Ned is pointing out, and then also the ones um, that might emerge as the winners after the crisis. Yes, we have we have two groups, and, and today uh, it's all about hygiene, and it's all about uh, getting your hands on the food that you can stock in your cupboards and survive the crisis. So people are thinking how to survive uh, from day to day and, and how to protect yourself from the virus. Uh, but that, that behavior, I think it's temporary. Uh, maybe the hygiene uh, or awareness of hygiene will stay with us for a bit longer. Uh, but when it comes to obviously stocking food and uh, buying canned uh, soup, I don't think and, and anyone is going to do for long and we'll all be sick and tired of, of eating the same food as well. Um, but uh, what I think is very interesting is, is the way consumers are realizing that being healthy and well is really fundamental to how we live our lives. Uh, and we are seeing a big pivot of what we do towards wellness. People are exercising at home, people are thinking how to to, to, to get better. Um, spending on skincare has been increasing in China through the crisis. Nike has been talking about what happened to their business in China, and actually their digital sales have been very strong, partially because Nike has used the direct-to-consumer communication and has been using trainers and, and and communication to tell people how to stay well uh, while they are staying at home. So is the pandemic um, and what follows afterwards, is that changing some of the, the, the big cycles that, um, that you look at? So um, demographics in one fund and consumer trends in another. Are you seeing them... You know some of these trends shifting uh, or being altered altogether. 
Yes, the, uh, the digitalization of our life, that's happening much faster because normally we thought in the next five years, this is how things are going to develop. I think as consumers realize that digitally we can do a lot, we can do things faster, cheaper, more conveniently, our lives will, will become much more digital. But also this, this awareness of wellness. And uh, for example, we have seen a very gradual and small, uh, slow decline in smoking. I think that's going to accelerate, partially because this virus attacks our lungs, but also as people think more about their need to take care of themselves and stay, stay healthy, I think some decisions about doing things that are better for yourself might be taken faster. Uh, so I think the kind of gradual trends that we've seen will accelerate. We also have seen um, people becoming more casual in the way they, they, they wear their clothes. And I think that trend is also going to accelerate because we are very comfortable at, in, in our home, at our homes, in our trainers. Again, why make such a big effort and, and dress formally when we can be all comfortable in more comfortable uh, shoes. So small things, bigger things. I think there's a lot of changes that are happening. And for me, it's a super exciting uh, time because when you invest in consumer, you can see the strengths and then you can back them up and find the companies that have the agility and execution capacity to deliver. Uh, Annette, perhaps um, uh, the video that's been recorded of this podcast will be an inspiration to you as well, because anybody who's seeing that will notice that um, we're all somewhat dressed down uh, from normal, e even Ned. Um, Ned, um, you, you were going to chip in on this. Yeah, I think Annette made made you know some really interesting points about uh, it, you know, the way that we look at different industries and different cycles, and 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 clearly the digitization of businesses is a trend that a lot of people are talking about. The work from home bucket of securities will be well focused on by the market, but other interesting things like telecoms, for example, which you know maybe telcos is the next critical utility, and this is an industry that hasn't had pricing power for a long time, low switching costs. But as we all are isolated and, and, and working from home today, I think we all recognize that connectivity is now one of the most important things provided to us and luxuries that we have. And so I think we need to think not just near term about who survives, but long term who compounds this benefit over long periods of time. And what about changing attitudes as well? Because one of the most extraordinary things about um, this is how a number of companies have been drawn into effectively, uh, it's, it's like a wartime command economy with governments directing them to make ventilators or face masks instead of cars or vacuum cleaners. Do you think that this state intervention into the corporate world um, or the expectations that businesses should provide a public service, is that going to have any lasting consequences in terms of uh, their license to operate, the way that society feels about business yeah i think uh, richard that's a that's an excellent point so i definitely think that that is the 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 direction of travel but i i it's, it's also worth remembering though that that if you look at for example the corporate sector in china that's already the case today you know you have party committees on the supervising most of, of the corporates both on the state-owned enterprise and the private-owned enterprises in, in in china so that attenuation to the value to society more broadly 
is already there in um, in, in the Chinese corporate sector and, and in, in, in other parts of, of Asia. But I do think that that relationship will evolve in, in other parts of, of the world as well. And we've seen, you know, different episodes of this historically. So we've seen things like public-private partnerships uh, in the UK and areas like this also in, in, in the US as well. But I, I think that that codependency of private and public sector will, will evolve in a new way uh, going forward. So I think it's not just a case of whether end customers feel that uh, the organization or the business is providing a value to society. I think it's about how many different stakeholders, be that uh, regulators, be that the, the industry bodies or other peers, be it the, the, the customers, be it the employees, feel that the organization is contributing to society. I feel we're going to be all in an environment with much more purpose-driven uh, companies and a purpose-driven corporate sector. Is that because the environment is now being, um, and I mean the political environment, is now being prepared for those expressions of opinion to, to become real in a way that wasn't the case beforehand? I want to build on the point that Annette made, which is that when I think about the current pandemic and its consequences, it's ultimately going to lead to acceleration and amplification of trends that were already there in society previously. So there already was a question about the role of the corporate sector in society. There already was a question about uh, whether the role of, it, of central banks was truly independent. There already were sort of these questions about the value of institutions and their connection and the role that they played for society more broadly. I think all of those are going to accelerate and become amplified as a result of, of, what, is, of what is going on right now. That sounds like quite a wake-up call, Ned, for company managements who perhaps haven't been tuned into this, uh, this change so far. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, what Paris is, is essentially getting at as well is this, this focus on sustainability um, and sustainable investing. And it will be very interesting. We are at an absolutely pivotal moment in the evolution of sustainable investing at this moment in time. And, and I think we're about to see uh, the rubber meet the road in terms of how these companies think not just about financial returns, but total social returns in addition to financial returns. And so it'll be very interesting to see how companies uh, uh, operate and, and investors actually, for that matter. With regards to, to, to Paris's comments on, on governments, um, I, I do think another thing we should be mindful of as investors coming out of this crisis is that we've experienced um, decades of, of globalization and there's great benefits from globalization. But I just did want to touch on this issues around supply chains. And I think part of what, what governments and corporates are going to have to be united in um, is, is, is possibly a potential retrenchment um, from global supply chains, i.e. allowing sort of regional stability to provide uh, citizens around the world what they need at times of potential crisis. So in order to future-proof supply of goods and services, it's possible that we need to see an uprising in local supply chains. So does that mean bad news for companies in China, which has been the, the factory of the world for so long, and, and more recently things have spread out to other parts of Asia as well? Is that a negative for um, companies in that region? I don't see it as a negative 
uh, for Asia necessarily. I think what it means is that companies are going to protect themselves uh, in having uh, multiple supply chains. And there, there, there are companies like the automotive industry, for example. For 25 years in the automotive industry, uh, no company has one single source supplier for, some, for a critical part. Um, and I'm not sure that all of the supply chains around the world have been that innovative. And so I think probably we'll continue to see the strength of, of Chinese manufacturing, uh, but I think companies will want to think carefully about being dependent on a single supplier. Anetta, are there some subtle ways that this might change companies' approach to sustainable investing? I think um, a lot of companies actually have sustainability deep in their DNA. And I think now it's coming out. So, for example, with Nike, what they have done over the last weekend in the US, they completely moved to digital communication, e-commerce, and they came up with the slogan, play inside, play for the world. They know their responsibility and they know that they talk to young people and being a cool brand like Nike using sports spokespersons, they can speak to the young people because very big, big challenge that the society has is to convince the young to stay at home and stop spreading the virus. So Paris, there's a sense then perhaps that this is make or break for ESG, for sustainable investing. Um, how likely is it, do you think, that in the rebuilding of economies around the world, that they are built in a sustainable way? I think what really changes around this this conversation uh, with respect to ESG, uh, you know, coming back to Ned's point, I think it is a, um, a watershed moment because I think what becomes extremely visible at a time like this is how well companies are thinking about their broader um, stakeholders and thinking about the issue of sustainability. I mean, even Richard, if you were to think about the way that a company thinks about their balance sheet uh, comes into play as you think about sort of sustainability, the way that brands uh, resonate and connect with their uh, customers uh, becomes even more acute, as Annetta talked about at a time like this. Now, I do think that what will change, because it is a watershed moment, is that evidencing that degree to which you have attenuation to broader stakeholders other than just the uh, financial shareholders of a business is going to be something that will see a step change in the, in, in the years and, and decades to come. So what I think will change is that companies will need to do more to demonstrate in hard evidence the way in which they are acting to serve the broad interests of society. Paris, let's talk about markets themselves and how they might be changed by um, what's going on in, in the crisis. Do you think that the ripples that spread out from this pandemic will precipitate a shift in how investors approach securities, how they're defined, for example, from developed markets, emerging markets and so on? So I think that there are probably two really interesting areas that I think investors need to, to consider. I mean, the first is that, you know, we often in these uh, podcasts, and in these conversations, you know, talk largely about public markets. But I think it's important to recognize that one of the things that has grown significantly over the last uh, decade has been uh, the investment that's gone into private markets. 
And in, in fact, much of the risk capital and much of the, if you like, excess risk that we've seen has actually been taking place in, in private markets. And one of the things that I see happening over the course of the coming years as a result of what we're seeing right now is potentially that, uh, that trend reversing, meaning that there will be uh, more scrutiny on um, uh, private markets and the way that they uh, invest uh, and derive returns for the investors versus what they bring to to the corporate sector. So we are already seeing stories where uh, companies in private hands have actually then gone bust, but but the but the investors have done well on, on that journey. I see that as being an area where uh, regulation and scrutiny will pick up. Linked to that, you know, this has also been the area where there has been much greater level of borrowing and, and, and gearing. And as we are in a, in a liquidity crisis, I think that there will be more for sales of assets and transfer of assets from public hands to, to, to private hands uh, as a result of what we're seeing right now. But I think that that will happen with a delayed effect because a lot of these portfolio structures like venture capital or private equity um, they reprice the portfolios very infrequently. So you're going to end up with the, the value loss in the portfolio being experienced over a, over a longer period of time. So I think that this, this is going to be a really interesting thing for investors to observe, but potentially gives another uh, area of focus and importance to public capital markets versus, versus private capital markets. The second area which I think is going to be really interesting is that I, I feel that investors will increasingly move away, as they have been doing, from looking at you know, dividing the world according to uh, regions or according simply to asset classes or according to sectors. So I do see us moving much more in the direction of thematic strategies or such as the, the demographics and consumer funds that Aneta is running. I do see that being you know, pan-regional rather than necessarily focusing on particular uh, parts of the world, given that the, the, the country of a company's domicility doesn't always explain uh, where they're actually making their money. Ned, I can see you nodding. I think that's right. I think the thematics is 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 not only um, a great way to capitalize on the trends that we've been talking about. Um, so I, I I completely agree with Paris. The other thing I I think that with the, even within public markets that we may want to consider, which Paris touched on briefly as well, is um, I think investors are going to become increasingly agnostic about the asset class. And so when we think about a thematic strategy that's taking advantage of some of these trends. I think we should try to be less focused on it only being an equity. Uh, uh, you know, you can only capitalize on that trend via one potential security. Um, and I think we should think about what is the best place to capitalize on that trend for clients at the issuer level rather than at the security level. Aneta, as an investor, how has the way that you approach the market changed over the last 10 years? And how do you think it might change as a result of what we're going through at the moment? I think over the last uh, 10 years, 
I have become even more of a quality-based investor. I think it was always a natural tendency for me to choose the companies that, that, that really have the best management, the best brands, the best intellectual property. And over the years, I've, I've realized that actually the use of technology and, uh, and, and the use of, of human abilities is really enabling companies to create businesses, capture market opportunity, but often create the market opportunity. And, and I think this virus will accelerate, will, will show the winners much faster. And I think the market is going to differentiate. Uh, in the sell-off, we've seen everything go down, everything go up. But as an investor, you really pay attention to the opportunities. You, you try to pick the stocks that really have been oversold. And there has been a lot of them, high, super high quality companies with amazing products and managements that have been sold off together with everything else. So I think it, it really is fantastic time for active fund management. Well, we're almost out of time. So I've, I'm going to ask you um, one more question to, to each of you, actually. Um, and it's building on that idea, because as we look ahead to, to the world in a couple of years time, can each of you tell me a company or a type of company that perhaps isn't well known now, but might well be dominating its industry in only a couple of years time? Anita? Um, the way I'm investing today is really uh, with the thought that the strong are getting stronger. So I, I do believe that a lot of the strong companies, the Nikes, L'Oreal's, Amazons, Walmarts of this world will get even stronger. So I think having lived through the emergence of little companies and little brands, independents, I think the trend is now changing and, and the strong are actually going to get stronger again because of the use of digitalization. And over time, we are going to see them much more agile and much better positioned to benefit from what's happening in the world. But in terms of companies that we don't, maybe investors haven't heard of or, or, or are new to us, as the role of the government is becoming bigger and as China has given us an example how well they were able to cope with the uh, the outbreak of the virus i think companies that that are able to use video based internet of things will become bigger and more important and governments as well as companies are going to use this kind of solutions so that's a slightly scarier uh, view of the future role of government a big brother uh, world in, in in a couple of years time uh, ned let me come to you um, any companies or types of companies that you think will come to the fore Absolutely. As I mentioned, I'm very focused on the issues surrounding connectivity in times like this. And I think we have a, a structural long-term winner coming out the, 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 the end of this. The way that we communicate with one another and the technology that's required to power that connectivity. And when you layer in as well the concept that that we may want to support also regional supply chains. You know, I've been thinking about the network communications operators, the equipment providers. So obviously there have been some big dominated global players uh, coming into European markets. So Huawei coming into the US and Europe. And I wonder if this is a time for companies like Nokia and Ericsson to have a bit of a resurgence. So I'll think about those companies as well. Uh, Paris, finally to you. I think there's sort of two areas that I'm, that I'm interested in. I, I'm interested in uh, Chinese brands that become globally accepted and, and globally loved. Um, and I think we're really at the kind of the foothills of that journey. You know, we don't yet today have a Chinese luxury brand that is, you know, that is globally popular, but I think that that is on its way. And the second is building on, you know, some of the things we touched on in this podcast. 
I think we are going to see a new generation of companies that are able to partner effectively with governments and support uh, quality and scale service provision, uh, the, the like of which we, we, I guess, have not seen before. We've seen examples of those historically, but I think that the, the next generation will, will need to be delivering value in a totally different way. Well, thank you, Paris, and thank uh, you to all of my guests who've painted a picture so vividly of um, a world uh, that could be quite different in not very long as a result of the extraordinary changes that we're, we're going through at the moment. So many thanks to Paris Anand, Ned Salter and Aneta Vinimko. And thank you for listening. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alexander Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.